0: Let's go one more time to the throne of grace, to the one who is the true, to the one who is the better. Our Father, we thank you for the one who is the true and better Adam to the one who is the true and better Isaac, to the one who is the true and better Moses, to the one who is the true and better David. And we confess that no man can receive anything unless it's given from your hand. And we pray this morning, That we might not come this morning with offerings of our own strength, our own nobility, our own intellect, our own wisdom, our own sense of giftedness. And we pray by your spirit that you might show us Christ and that rather than these five solas being simply instruments of reformation, that you might transform us by their truths, that we might know your Son and the eternal life that comes only through Him. This, this is our sola, This is the one thing alone we wish, that we might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, there's a difference between reformation and transformation there's lots of ways to illustrate this but I want you for a moment to think of maybe arriving at a dinner party and everyone is dressed up as we say to the nines they look great and then all of a sudden, you realize there's a boar hog, that's a male hog, that has come in and he is dressed in a tuxedo. And he's walking in line with, he's, I think he's the plus one of an invitation, like to this person, plus one. So the boar hog, dressed to the nines in the tuxedo, is the plus one, the guest And he's coming in, and everyone is dressed beautifully. There's music in the background. The lighting is very sublime. There's people bringing food and drink all around. But there is, and everyone's noticing with these glances, in fact, a tuxedoed pig. And you discover that this pig had been taken to a four-hour etiquette class the weekend before this gala, and was given proper instructions on etiquette, you know. But at the end of the day, no matter the degree of reformation on preparation for this pig to attend the gala, everybody knows. It's a pig. Pigs snort. Pigs Oink pig's smell and all of that even the enjoyment and the brightness of the moment did not transform that pig to a giraffe or make it a spider or a lion or a tuna the pig came into the gala as a pig And all the Reformation in the world would not transform that pig to something it it was not. All the Reformation would not do that. And today, many will acknowledge this day as Reformation Sunday. But we want more out of it simply than it being a particular day in history. You know, tomorrow we'll acknowledge as Reformation Day. In fact, a year ago, we celebrate this. A year ago, the church that we helped plant in Conway, Rivertown Grace Fellowship, when we constituted that, and I preached there a year ago today, Reformation Sunday, they celebrate that, and we give thanks to God as a church for them. In fact, they volunteered to be of help to us next year when we host the GA. But it was 505 years ago tomorrow... On October 31st, 1517, that a German monk named Martin Luther, and some of you kids learned that his wife was named Catherine, really Katie. He nailed, just like some of you did yesterday, some of you children nailed, the the famous 95 theses or propositions to the church door at Wittenberg. It was a moment barely noticed at the time but the implications for the church were staggering really you would say life-altering and they changed the course of the church by the recovery of the transforming power of the gospel these were not just like any five truths that you would bookmark like things that are true that are objectively or even empirically true And in a word, the Protestant Reformation was a transformation of the accepted thinking at that time about the very nature of salvation, how a man or woman or child could be right with God. And kids, let me leave you real quickly. The one question that you must answer, the single question, the question that stands all alone by itself for you about life, is how will you be right with God? And moms and dads, you can check this later today. What's the single question that you must answer? How will you be right with God? And of course, the Lord Jesus says in John 14 in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But that was the question that was on the table at the time of the Reformation. Salvation and forgiveness could not be obtained through the purchase of indulgences. That's why later the apostles would say in preaching, silver and gold have I none, but what I have you, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world, this Peter and James and John and Paul would say, this is who I have for you. And so, such thinking that through the exchange of coinage, through the common currency, currency that forgiveness could be obtained by the purchase of indulgences was an affront to God and to the gospel. And so, that brings us to the five solas. How should we view the Protestant Reformation? I ask you to think about this. What should the five solas accomplish to shape our perspective of the truths of the Bible, of the nature of salvation? John Piper, five years ago, in the 500th anniversary of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, made this point. He said, think of it this way, that the five solas were not so much even about Protestantism, not so much distinctly about Christianity, but about focused and putting the spotlight on the very doctrine of salvation. How can a person be right with God? How may we be saved? How will we be rescued from our sin? That is the great truth and truth that were reclaimed at the Reformation. And more than anything, then I want us to see the transforming power and force of these five solas and how they are a solid bedrock to our faith in Christ Jesus. And at some point, I think they'll get up here, but we'll wait on that. There's a reason that Martin Luther, as one of the Reformers, was profoundly influenced and what he wrestled with was this truth The truth expressed in chapter 1 of Romans, verses 16 and 17. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or beginning with faith and ending with faith, as he quotes here from Habakkuk 2.0. In verse 4, as he says, it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we speak of five solas, not solo, like one person singing, but sola. And sola simply means alone in Latin. And in Luther's day, 500 years ago, Latin was part of the lingua franca, it was the language that people knew. And they spoke, it was well and broadly. Known widely and broadly known five centuries ago. And so out of that Reformation were five solas, five truth realities rediscovered and affirmed from the pages of Scripture. And they were the legacy of that period. They were the seeds of a holy new era of the church. They served, they served as kindling for the church catching fire. They were the flashpoint of the church catching fire as it rediscovered the very nature of the way God saves. In the same way that Jonah would say in Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. That was the cry of the reformers. It is God and God alone who saves. And yet it's more broad as we get these five solas. And I want to encourage you not to sweat the era or the order of these five solas you can, if you go and you do a Google search, you will find that the five solas have great variety, all right, great variance in the order that they're listed in writing, sermons, posters, etc. What's important is that we see the significance of their interrelatedness and the interrelatedness of them all. The truths that they express come from sacred scripture. From the pages of God's inspired word. This book that is the production of the Holy Spirit. Distinct from normal human writings. But let's not pretend that there's an inspired order of the five solos. That would be a stretch for us to assert that. But look here just for a moment. This, this is what we'll use this morning. The only change, I, I honestly love sola scriptura at the front. I could also could switch Christus and Fide, but for the moment, this will be our order for our outline in our remaining time together. So I want to begin with sola gratia. Let's begin here. What does that mean? It means simply by grace alone. It's really the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God's grace is the source of all life and all good. And that's what we mean by grace alone. But I want you to notice how prominent it is in Paul's writings in the passages that Aaron read for us earlier. Some of you know grace by that acronym. What do you know it by? God's riches at Christ's expense. It's free. You cannot pay for it. It's undeserved. You cannot earn it. You cannot turn a timesheet into God and say, you owe me grace. Or look, I worked 42 hours and I want those 40 at straight time and those two other hours at time and a half. Or it was on a weekend and you need to pay me double time. We don't demand grace from God. We receive it. We give gratitude for it. It's secure, you cannot lose it. The Lord Jesus says that no one and nothing will snatch his sheep from his hand. And this grace of God is at the very heart of God in his plan and purpose to save a multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation. Why? Because as we read in Habakkuk 2, verse 14, it says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's grace. Why grace? Why grace? Why sola gratia? So that God in his glory will be known as fully and as broadly in the earth in the same way that the waters cover the sea. Some of us live with a functional meritocracy. Our identity is in what we've done. And at its core, the gospel is not so much about what we do, but what God has done for us in Christ. There's a second solo, that's Solus Christus. Some of you might say Solus Christus. It's by Christ alone. We even sing this song by Christ alone. Alone. And by the way, I'd like you to turn, if you're not there, turn to Romans 1. Keep that open for a moment. Because in effect, you see the five solas here. You see grace in verse 5 and verse 7. You see Christ in verse 1. A servant of Christ Jesus. Verse 3, his son. Verse 4, the son of God. Verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 6, Jesus Christ. Verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see faith. Paul says he and his fellow apostles received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. You see the glory of God there at the end, or in the end of verse 5, where it speaks of for the sake of his name. That's a synonym for the glory of God among all the nations. And then you see sola scriptura. Paul says that it is this gospel that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, in verse 1. Seven verses, making up the introduction to Paul's letter, five undeniable sola. Sola gratia, sola Christus, sola fide, sola Deo gloria, sola Scriptura. But let's return to sola Christus. If salvation is by grace alone, then it is on the basis of, Of Christ alone on the basis of his perfect life lived his atoning death died and his all-sufficient once for all time sacrifice on behalf of his people his sheep you give nothing in the gospel and receive everything every benefit through Christ. He gives everything. And there's no other. There's no other than Christ. It is Christ alone. And if God's grace alone is the source of all life and all good, then the grace is founded, it's embedded in this person And work of Christ. There's no other Redeemer. There's no other figure, no other character. He is alone. He is the lone redeemer necessary. He's the lone redeemer given. The lone offering accepted that we might be made acceptable to God. And some of you know we've talked about, we've got an Excel spreadsheet with all our passwords. Some of you probably have that. With the many passwords to different things in your life. You know how frustrating it is to get the wrong password, and you can't remember it, or you changed it, or you're getting an email saying it's changed, and you're trying to figure that out. And the one single password you need that alone will work, you do not have. If you have Christ... You have the single person, the only Savior through whom you may receive spiritual and eternal life. Through Him is your redemption. Through Him is your justification. Through Him is your sanctification. Through Him is your transformation. Through Him ultimately is your glorification. There's no one else. Jesus stated it. I already said this earlier, I am the way, in John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when Peter was asked by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, by what power or by what name did you do this? And they were referring to the healing of this lame beggar that was healed in Acts chapter 3, who went leaping and walking and praising God, it was Peter that without apology preached the exclusivity of Jesus or Christ alone. It was a word of solus Christus. And he said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, no other name under heaven given among men. Men, And then Paul advances this theme of Christ alone when he wrote to the church in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And those words have never been attributed to anyone else in the pages of of Scripture. Sola gratia, solus Christus. Now we come to sola fide. By grace alone and on account of the person and work of Christ is a person saved. But now we come to the subject of faith. And I want to be clear here that there are two gospel responses. There are two appropriate responses to the gospel. Faith and repentance in fact, I was sharing this to some of you if you've never read the 95 theses. The very first of Martin Luther's theses is that the whole of the Christian life is about repentance. So in the morning when you wake up, it's completely appropriate to be thanking God that he preserved you through the night. And it's a pre, a completely appropriate to be praying lead me not into temptation help me to pursue holiness with the right motive with the direction of your word and with the right goal of your glory but god help me to turn all day from my first no my from the first breath i'm conscious of to my, when i put my head on my pillow and I have that last conscious thought Help me be turning from my sin and to be turning to Christ alone. Let it be more than simply the name of a song in Christ alone. Let me be one whose life is characterized by repentance and faith. And faith not works as this exclusive instrument of grace. And you might find this interesting because Paul calls it the obedience of of faith. In fact, the call—the call from the apostles preaching in the Book of Acts—is that men and women everywhere should be repent, should be repenting and turning to God. And so we may say we are saved by faith through Christ, through grace in Christ alone. And I want to illustrate this. Some of you are familiar. We talk about this as an illustration of the relationship between grace. And faith. Grace is the source of our life in Christ. Faith is the pipe, it's the tube through which the life of grace is received by us. But grace, by its very definition, is not something we merit, it's a gift. And so it is with faith. And that's why I asked Aaron to read this passage from Ephesians 2. Turn there while you hold your hand in Romans 1. Turn to Ephesians 2 just for a moment. We are saved by faith through grace in Christ alone. Our faith is not the source of our conversion. God's grace is the source of our conversion Our faith is the instrument of our conversion, but our faith is his gift to us. That's the point in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, and I want you to see this here. For by grace, verse 8, you have been saved through faith. So something may be the instrument of accomplishing something, but it is not the source. And so it is with faith. And so Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And what we know is the word this there is a pronoun whose gender is neuter, and that refers to the word gift, which is a neuter noun. So we may say it this way, we may say for by grace you have been saved through faith and this gift is not your own doing or accomplishment, it finds its source in God. And we may attach gift to all of verse 8, the grace, the salvation, and the faith. We bring nothing. We get everything. Faith is the only instrument. Grace is the only source. And Christ is the only object of our faith. There'll be no one in heaven that says, God, here are my credentials for why you must receive me into heaven. I believed. We don't present our own faith as a virtue and the grounds upon which God would accept us. Does that make sense? It's the object which is King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He alone saves. So when you read or hear sola fide or by faith alone, may your heart be stirred. May you rejoice and tremble. For Paul affirms that the way you tried to save yourself is no way at all. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Works cannot save. Works will not save us. We don't have enough of them. And even if we piled them all up, some of them are rotten. Because the only way of work could be perfectly accepted before God is that it springs out of a heart of pure love for God, that it's entirely circumscribed, its shape, every border, every boundary by the Word of God, and that it has as its ultimate end God's glory. That though our name be forgotten, as long as God's glory is the brightest constellation in the universe, then that's good. But we're entirely unable to present any work like that. They're just not perfect enough. The motive for our obedience, our works is tinged with impurity. The character of our obedience, that is our works, is not fully in line with the word of God. And the goal of our obedience is not perfectly centered upon the glory of God. If you miss a target by one degree, it doesn't matter. If you've missed it by 80 or one, you've missed it. And so comes faith. Our works will not cut it. God's way is faith upon all his promises that are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Sola fide. So we read in Romans 21 in fact if you're there and you're holding that go back for a moment to Romans 3 this isn't really fair I'm asking you to hold Romans 1 Ephesians 2 back to Romans 3 you may laugh at me that's okay just don't miss sola fide that righteousness Paul says is apart from the law verse 21 it's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe belief and faith synonyms we're just abide, justified there is by his grace as a gift. That accords with Ephesians 2. Now watch, go to verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And yet Paul says in chapter 1 of Romans that he was given grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience Of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Yes, faith may be expressed as an act of obedience, but it is the very gift of God. I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon on this verse from Romans 3 26. He says it so much better, I think, than we can. He says, If God is just, I, a sinner, alone and without a substitute, must be punished. But God stands in my place and is punished for me. And now, if God is just, I, a sinner standing in Christ, can never be punished. God must change his nature before one soul for whom Jesus was a substitute can ever by any possibility suffer the lash of the law. Therefore, Jesus, having taken the place of the believer, having supplied himself as the full equivalent to divine wrath for all that his people ought to have suffered as the result of sin, the believer can shout with glorious triumph, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life. And Spurgeon adds this, and I think this is brilliant. Think about this. He says, my hope lives not because I am not a sinner. Let me repeat that. My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am, or shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is, in what He has done, and in what He is now doing for me. On the line of justice, Spurgeon says, the fair maid of hope rides like a queen. Let's move to the fourth of these five solas, sola deo gloria. We've seen the first three, sola gratia, solus Christus, and sola fide. And now I ask this question, what is more compelling than the glory of God? What is more compelling than the glory of God? You know, when it's dark in our bedroom, if I turn on the light in the middle of the night, Cheryl ducks under the covers so that the brightness of the light will not irritate her by her unthinking husband. Okay, but what's more compelling than the glory of God? Surely more than a 40-watt fixture in a bedroom. And that's, of course, the meaning of solideo gloria, the glory of God alone. And we might abridge this to express to the glory of God alone, or for the glory of God alone. Alone, And that's the whole point of that word for the sake of in Romans 1 and verse 5 where Paul says, look, I and my fellow apostles have received, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith that's in the foreground, but on the other side, on the other side of that obedience is this ultimate goal, which is the renown of God's name. And so we might say that the obedience of faith is second. It's penultimate. That God's glory is ultimate. And like the grace of God that's evident from the first pages of Scripture, and let there be light. To the end of Revelation, the glory of God is conspicuous from the creation narrative in the beginning of Genesis to those very closing scenes in the end of the book of Revelation where Pastor Jamie will be reaching to the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell forever and where there will be no more tears nor death, no more crying, nor, mo- nor mourning, nor pain anymore. There will no longer be the glory or hubris or vanity of man but the unrivaled glory of God alone. Isn't that a great thought to think, of heaven to think? All that energy you've expended trying to put to death, the sin of pride, that subtle sin of pride in so many forms, that day will be no more. There'll be but the light and the glory of God alone. And I don't want you to gloss over those words there in Romans 1, 5, where you read, for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's why I read Psalm 67 is our call to worship. Those words there, for the sake of his name among all the nations, they're fully freighted with great weight. It's just another way of expressing the glory of God when we speak of the renown of his matchless name. It's the impulse behind the opening words of Psalms like Psalm 92 and verse one, it is good to give thanks to the Lord to sing praises to your name, O Most High. In Psalm 96, one and two, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Sing to the Lord again, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. And how can we not miss Paul's exultant benediction at the end of Romans 11. Turn there, if you will, for a moment. And I love the way Aaron read this. With emotion, you can imagine Paul is is really wrapping up his magnum opus, his very best of displaying and putting for our admiration for our humility, for our joy, the whole plan, the whole plan of salvation through Christ alone, even justification by faith, everything that God has done for us and for his people in Christ. He displays it, and he concludes the doctrinal section of perhaps his greatest letter with a singular glory of God alone focus as he stands back, And he surveys the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I want you to ask think about this. What is his final punctuating arms lifted up exultation in 1136? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God, the living God, is the source and agent and goal of all things designed for this singular end just one his glory his na- renown his reputation and so when you read the word amen at the end of Ro- romans 11:36 remember this is more than it inspired the end. This word is a derivative from the Hebrew word for faith. Let it be so. This is the faithful word. Sole Deo Gloria. We're nearing the end, just a few more miles to go, I promise. Sola Scriptura. By grace alone, by faith alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And I know I just reversed the order. Sola gratia, solus Christus, sola fide, sola Deo gloria. And there remains only one more solo as we remember this morning those transforming truths of the Reformation some five centuries ago. And it's a reminder, and I want to remind kids, it's so important, you may be able to spit back these five solas to mom and dad. And we want you to know them for their truth. But more importantly, we want you to know the one who says he is the truth. You see, brothers and sisters, how possible it is for us to be completely orthodox in our theology and check all the boxes and be precise in being able to express what we believe and it be biblically faithful. But to have lost our awe, our sense of this wonder that I, that you with our sins, and we only know the tip of the iceberg. We don't really understand fully the darkness, the rottenness, the ugliness of all our sins. Some of it's insidious. It's like an invisible gas that you cannot see. That's why David prayed in Psalm 19, Lord, equip me of hidden faults. And so we must say, oh God, don't let me simply be orthodox. Let me be a man or a woman or a child who can say with heart, with a full heart, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. But there's just this final treasure, this final sola, sola scriptura. I want to read to you the two verses, the first two verses of Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures. And so we may speak of scripture alone, or the word of God alone. There's no need to quibble. God has spoken. God has spoken authoritatively. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews has so clearly written, he begins his book with these words. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. But it was that son in the hour of his temptation in the wilderness who said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it was that son on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 that took those those disciples who didn't have any idea who he was and he took them to the scriptures. And he basically revealed, he exegeted those scriptures to say, This is he of whom those spoke. The traditions of men, the the uninspired writings of men, though they be numerous, though they express profound brilliance, diversity of thought, genius of expression, They must yield to the only rule for faith and obedience, the Word of God, as found in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. This book is the product. There's a dual authorship of the Spirit of God at work in men, working with their natural personalities, the context of their lives, their trainings, so that Paul can impress On his true child in the faith, Timothy, the importance of sola scriptura in his final letter. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And it was in an earlier letter that Paul could encourage Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Why? Why would Paul press this on Timothy? Because it is the Word of God, the inspired, infallible, authoritative Scriptures that are our only guide and rule for faith and obedience. I want to close. Don't be a pig. Don't think that a four-hour etiquette class and a nice tuxedo and a great companion is enough. I know we call this Reformation Sunday and tomorrow's Reformation Day. Ironically, yes, Reformation has appeared on our history we celebrate. But the whole of the Bible celebrates and speaks of the transforming power and work of God to take us from those who are dead in our sins. Ephesians 2, those of us who are walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And so that we were living in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I thank God so much that when Aaron read this, he was moved to read this with the emotion that it deserves. With the greatest but in the Bible, I think, in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, though we were dead, because he was rich in mercy and because his heart was full of this great love with which he loved us, with which he poured out upon us in Christ. And so though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, though we shook our fist at him in rebellion, he made us his enemies by Christ Jesus through the gift of faith Through undeserved grace. His children. And so rather than being objects of wrath. We become beloved children. That transformation. That new life. May be yours today. Let today be. By his grace. Not Reformation Day. Let it be for you. Transformation Day. To God be the glory.